Well, what a joy it is to celebrate a baptism this morning, and what a joy it is to dig into God's Word together. Um, If you want to open your Bibles to Amos 1, 3, and we're going to look on into chapter 2, verse 3. If you don't know where Amos is, you can just look at the, the table of contents in the beginning. It should be in that part of your Bible where the pages stick together because they haven't been read very much. Like most of us don't really read the minor prophets too often, but um, hopefully this serves as a, a kind of introduction to uh, Amos and, and the minor prophets as we dig through this book together, um, since Amos was actually the first of the writing prophets. He was the first to, to write his prophecies down. In, uh, in the Old Testament, the first prophet to do that, which is a um, uh, fascinating little bit of history there. But uh, Amos 1, 3 through 2, 3, really briefly before we jump in, if you're a guest with us this morning and, and you want to find out a little bit more um, about our church family or let us know how we can be praying for you, please go to veritasdayton.org slash connect and fill out that digital connect card there so we know how we can be praying for you and how we can get in touch with you get you connected with what God is doing here in our church family. All right, well, let's dig into Amos 1-3 through 2-3. It's a fascinating bit of text here this morning, and I trust that it will be um, impactful to you since God, God's word never returns void. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Last week we looked at verses 1 and 2, and we pick it back up this week in verse 3 of chapter 1. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Benadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into Kerr, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Taman and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, 
For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kiriath and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we ask that you would illumine our understanding in our hearts now to understand your word and to see you and trust you and to receive this word into our hearts. And we pray that our hearts would not be like that thorny soil or that beaten down path or the the rocky soil, but that it would be like that fresh, our hearts would be like that fresh fertile soil prepared by your spirit to receive the seed of the word and produce 30, 60, 100 fold for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, and for the furtherance of your mission in the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And have a seat. Well, um, not too long ago, I, I came across a social media post from a dear friend, a dear brother in Christ, um, and in it he was counseling fellow Christians on, on how to engage in the public square on one of the many hot-button political issues of our day. And he counseled that, that Jesus' followers should stop expecting those who don't profess to follow Christ to live according to the teachings of the Bible. He said, let's stop trying to make people who don't believe in the teachings of the Bible to follow this mor- these morals from this, this book that they don't believe. In other words, Christians shouldn't concern themselves with seeing society conformed to God's moral and ethical standards, and we shouldn't concern ourselves with pursuing uh, legislation, uh, for example, that enforces God, God's moral and ethical norms. Instead, he said, we should concern ourselves with the task of building interpersonal relationships and sharing the gospel with those in our personal sphere of influence. We should concern ourselves with seeing individuals transformed by the truth of the gospel as it grips their hearts and their lives. But we shouldn't concern ourselves with seeing the the society in which we live conformed to the ethics we find in Scripture. After all, as I've heard many Christians say a number of times before, you can't legislate morality. And so what's the use in seeking reform in the political and public life of a nation. Let's just focus on evangelism. But now, is, is, is our task as God's people really that simple? Of course, a, a primary part of our calling as God's people is to build relationships with others and share the truth of the gospel with those within our sphere of influence. We're, we're, there's no denying that. That's That's primary. You know, we, we've uh, talked about many times this year, this call at Veritas to really seek to pray for and invest in one person this year with whom we can share the gospel and introduce to Christ and the church. That's essential. That's, that's primary. That's mandatory. But is that the extent of our calling as God's people? Or do we bear some form of responsibility as God's people to pursue seeing our, our culture and our nation and our state and our city and our neighborhoods conformed to God's moral and ethical norms? 
Do we bear some form of responsibility to see our nation and city and state governments conform to God's standards of righteousness and justice? Well, according to Amos 1, 3 through 2, 3, I think the only answer that we could conclude is that, yes, we do indeed bear some form of responsibility to do this as God's people. Because the reality is that the Lord will not only hold individuals accountable for their sins and injustices at the final judgment and his eternal judgment, but he holds nations and peoples accountable now for the justices and corporate sins therein. The sort of big idea we see here is that because of God's universal lordship, he requires all nations to conform to his ethical norms. And I want to look at this, I, I first just by simply walking through the text and unpacking it briefly, and then discussing some of the theological and, and practical implications of this text. Well, as you, you uh, might have noticed, as I read through our text just a few moments ago, Amos here delivers a poem in which he announces judgment on several nations surrounding the nation of Israel in his day and for the various injustices that they've committed. And they each follow the same basic pattern, so they state the certainty of this coming judgment, one example of one of the injustices that they've committed, and then a, a revelation of what the coming judgment entails. And, and each of these announcements begins with the same phrase, for three transgressions of, dot, 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 fill in the blank, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And if you know uh, much about the scriptural use of, of numbers such as this, it will make sense to you. Uh, so three and four add up and make, you got to do math, seven. That's right. Um, and so in, in seven, in, in this Hebraic culture, represents this, this idea of completion. It represents this idea of completion. It represents a kind of culmination or perfection. And in saying that each of these nations are being judged for seven transgressions, Amos is not literally saying that they've committed sev only seven sins and they're about to be judged for uh, these seven sins. It's the highest number allowed. That's not what he's saying. And so he's saying that the, the heinousness and multitude of their injustices and transgressions has come to a kind of culmination. Like a, like a cup that was being filled but is now overflowing. They've, 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 they've filled up their cup of transgressions and it's now overflowing upon them. And so you see here, we shouldn't see the Lord as a God who's quick to anger and judgment. We should realize that these nations haven't committed like a one-off transgression here. And so the Lord flies off the handle. That's not what's happening. No, they, they've repeatedly and perpetually done what is evil in God's sight. They've repeatedly and perpetually committed social injustices against their neighbors. They've filled up this cup of iniquities and exhausted the, law, the Lord's forbearance with them. He's given them every opportunity for repentance. He's given them every opportunity for these nations to correct their course and to make restitution. He's, but, but they've continued They've continued in their injustices. They've continued in their transgressions. And so, the Lord's patience has run out. And he's about to act in judgment against them. But then, Amos doesn't mention three sins or four sins or seven sins committed by these nations. Instead, he mentions maybe one or two as kind of maybe sins that are representative of, of, of the kinds of uh, um, perpetual sins that these nations are guilty of. 
And the first nation that Amos turns his attention to is the nation of Syria. Syria, with their sort of capital being in Damascus. So look at, at uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 there. You're going to need to get in your Bible for this for a little, a few minutes. So uh, look at the text, verses 3 to 5. And Amos says in verse 3 that Syria has threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Okay? Uh, and he's not speaking literally, but, but metaphorically here. In Gilead, a Syrian army invaded, and seems, it seems like they've torn human beings apart like threshing sledges would tear apart wheat in a field. They've just torn human beings apart and families apart. Their military was cruel and brutal and merciless toward these weak and vulnerable people in Gilead. And so the Lord says the fires of judgment are going to come against Damascus in Syria, which we know is fulfilled through the Assyrian army in 2 Kings 16.9. And then next in verses 6 to 8, Amos announces the Lord's judgment against the Philistines, in particular the the cities of, of Gaza, and Ashdod and Ekron. And the particular injustice denounced against them is that they kidnapped and sold into slavery a whole community of people. Okay, they participated in the slave trade. Uh, we're, we're, we're not told who this community is that they invaded, but apparently there's this community the Philistines invaded, and, and, and all those who were not killed in battle were kidnapped and sold to slavery in Edom. And so the Lord pronounces judgment against them. And as history tells us, just over a century later, those three cities fell to Assyrian hands. And next in verses 9 and 10, we see that Tyre was guilty of the same sin as the Philistines. They participated in the cruelty of the slave trade. Okay, they attacked and kidnapped and sold a whole community of people into slavery in Edom. And and to make matters worse here, their victims seem to have been God's people with whom Tyre had made a covenant with during the reigns of David and Solomon. And so that's the covenant mentioned here in verse 9. These two nations had a sort of treaty, a peace agreement, which Tyre had violated in their cruelty. And so Amos prophesies a coming fiery judgment against this people, which came, as we now know, when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Tyre just two centuries later. And again, when Alexander the Great utterly destroyed this city just a little, little over 400 years after Amos's prophecy. And next comes Edom in verses 11 and 12, which Amos describes as Israel's brother because Israel, as you know, descended from Jacob and Edom descended from Jacob's brother Esau. And yet Edom hated and despised Israel, such hatred that they eventually pursued Israel with the sword and without pity or mercy at all. They were, they were happy then to purchase God's people as slaves from Tyre and the Philistines. And they were happy then to take the lives of, of the people of Israel and Judah because of their racism and their ethnocentrism. They despised God's people. And so the Lord would eventually destroy their nation's headquarters in Basra, he says. And then next, the nation of Ammon in verses 13 to 15. And and Ammon, like Edom, uh, was related to Israel since Israel descended from Abraham and Ammon, uh, from Abraham's nephew Lot. 
And they seem to uh, enter into some sort of battle with Israel and Gilead. And they too were mercilessly brutal toward their kinsmen. It says in verse 13 that uh, this Ammonite army ripped open the pregnant women in Gilead. Killing pregnant women and their unborn children. And why did they commit such brutality and violence? Why? Because they, they did it so that they might enlarge their borders, it says. They committed such a, a heinous act of injustice. They desecrated and murdered image bearers of God for the purpose of geographical expansion and economic prosperity. And so the Lord, in his rage, announces that Ammon is going to be invaded and sent into exile under the fiery judgment of the Lord. And then lastly, Amos turns to Moab in chapter 2, verses 1 and three, one through 3. And the transgression mentioned in, in Moab, this is an interesting one. It, it says that they burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. And it's hard to say precisely what this is. It could be that in battle with Edom, they might have captured the king of Edom and burnt him alive. Or it's possible that when in battle with Edom, they may have killed the king of Edom or dug up the corpse of an already deceased king of Edom and then desecrated the corpse by burning it to dust. Either way, this this act of brutality and blatant, blatant irreverence enrages Yahweh and he will therefore judge Moab by desecrating their cities and killing their king and all of their rulers through the invasion of Assyria years later. Now, that's, that's got to have lifted your spirits this morning, I'm sure. Uh, come to church to be encouraged, and you just hear a litany of particularly heinous human rights violations. And actually, the, the same kind of human rights violations, th- these are the same kind of human rights violations that you're liable to see if you check social media after this or, or turn on the news this evening. And, and I don't know about you, but there's something oddly encouraging about that. Because, as we mentioned last week, it, it speaks to the Lord's care and involvement about these very kinds of events across our globe and even in our own nation. It shows his care for the oppressed and marginalized. It shows his care about injustice. He's not absent or indifferent to human history at all. And this is true for all peoples and nations everywhere. I want you to notice here that Amos' attention and Yahweh's attention here is not solely on Judah and Israel, okay? His attention here is on all of these, these peoples and nations in this world. And it's not just their injustices toward his elect people, but for their injustices toward one another. And this brings us to our first kind of takeaway from our text this morning, and that's Yahweh's universal lordship. Notice that at the, at the opening and closing of each of these stanzas, they begin similarly, thus says the Lord. And then, and then uh, several of them close by saying, says the Lord. And each time the word Lord is used there, it has all the letters capitalized. You may have noticed that. And that's supposed to be the sort of translator sign to us that the word translated here is the word Yahweh or Jehovah, which is the personal name of God given to his people. And out of reverence for his name, his people long ago just started using uh, the, the word Lord to translate this word Yahweh. And this is significant, you see, because often in those days, every nation and people were, were seen to kind of have their own uh, tribal deity, their own national deity, and, and they would get in wars and, and battles, and whoever won, they would claim then that they had the, the superior God. It's kind of like a my dad can beat up your dad thing, but on an international scale. 
But here, notice that Amos doesn't see Yahweh as a mere tribal deity. Okay, he's not the Lord of Israel and Judah only. And likewise, he's not the Lord of the new covenant people of God, the church only. No, he's the Lord of all creation. He is the sovereign king whose reign extends over every nation of the earth. There's no nation exempt from his sovereignty. As a Jewish philosopher, Abraham Heschel put it, he said the God of Israel is the God of all nations and all men's history is his concern. Or J. Alec Mateer, he put it well, when he wrote this about this passage, he said, it's the crowning evidence that Amos is speaking of the God of the whole Bible, the God of the Bible-loving Christian, that in the name of his God, he faces the whole world and all the reality of its cruelties, its unresolved injustices, its privileged and underprivileged peoples, and submits it totally and without reserve to the sway and judgment of the one and only God. Feel the weight of the monotheism of Amos. When he reviews the world of have-nots, the nations who have never received any revelation of Yahweh, he takes absolutely no cognizance of the fact that each worshipped a God of its own. Such information was quite irrelevant. It was not to that God that they were answerable, nor could that God save them in the day of Yahweh's wrath. There was only one God over the whole earth, and to him they must and would render account. You see here, Yahweh... Is not a mere tribal deity confined to the Israelites and later the church. He is the universal Lord whose sovereignty knows no bounds. Those nations may have had no knowledge of Yahweh, no knowledge of his word, of the Mosaic covenant. It matters not. He is the universal Lord, the one and only true sovereign king. And so whatever happens in these nations is his business. Yahweh is the universal Lord. And that brings us to our next point, which is that because Yahweh is the universal Lord, his ethical norms, his moral norms are universal. Of course, looking at this text brings up the question. If these nations did not possess the blessings that Israel possessed, if, if they didn't possess the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, the promises of God, if they didn't believe in those things, how on earth could they be held responsible for actions that violated God's moral standards? As my dear brother mentioned, and I mentioned earlier, you really shouldn't expect non-Christians to live as if they're Christians, right? And in one sense, he's right. But if a nation... Here's the thing. If, if these are are violations of not just God's written law, but as James Montgomery Boyce puts it, he says these are violations of that basic code of human behavior written on the hearts of all people and expected of all. God holds even pagan nations responsible for their merciful behavior, but these, as others, had acted without mercy toward their foes. You see, this is an idea we find in Scripture. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans 2, 12 through 16. The reality that the law of God is not only written on the pages of Holy Scripture, the law of God is written on the hearts and consciences of every human being. Because humanity is made in the image of God, and because of, of God's common grace to humanity, 
and their having and possessing consciences, we all have some sense of what is right and wrong, righteous and unrighteous, just and unjust. All humanity has some sense of the wickedness of this kind of brutality toward the weak and vulnerable. Of the wickedness of of kidnapping and selling human beings into slavery. Of, Of the wickedness of going back on your word given in covenantal and contractual agreements. And yet peoples and nations in our text this morning and throughout human history continue to sear and dull their consciences. They continue to value profit over people. They continue to commit acts of of brutality and oppression, but they're without excuse, you see. Even if they don't possess or believe in God's word, because, because God has given them a witness written on their own consciences that these acts of brutality and injustice are wrong. And they are wrong. As Christians, we're not moral relativists. Okay, we we must not and cannot believe that the corporate and communal sins of a nation are excused simply because they consist within that, they're consistent within that own nation's ethical beliefs. God's, God's justice is for all peoples and all nations, whether they recognize him as Lord or not. No nation, no people of the earth can be sort of partitioned off from his sovereign rule and reign. As if, well, you know, that's their culture. And in their culture, these kinds of acts are, are violence or, or aren't considered wrong. And so even though it's not okay for us as Christians, it's okay for them. That's what Syrians do. That's what Philistines do. That's what Moabites do. They're allowed to do what they do there. No, injustice is injustice, whether it's culturally acceptable in its particular context or not. Abortion... And infanticide is wrong. Regardless of whether the wider culture says so or not, or whether or not the laws of a land declared acceptable or not, or whether a particular political party deems it to be a woman's right or not. Just the same, it's, it's wrong to kill another human being for the sake of convenience, just the same as ripping pregnant women open to enlarge Ammonite borders was wrong. A subjecting sojourners at our southern border to inhumane conditions in jail is wrong, whether or not the laws of our nation deem it acceptable or not. Brutality is wrong, whether it's coming from a police officer toward a minority or whether it's coming from unruly crowds in the streets. It's wrong is wrong. Injustice is injustice. And the one who determines what is wrong or right, just or unjust, is not politicians or governing authorities or the electorate or the wider culture at large. The one who determines what is just and unjust, right and wrong, is Yahweh, the universal Lord, whose ethical norms are universal. And it is to him, therefore, that nations and peoples and governments and cities and states are ultimately accountable for what they do and what they fail to do. And in light of this, I think it behooves us to ask the question about our own nation, the nation in which we live, the nation in which we're citizens of, of whether or not the United States is a nation of justice and righteousness. If Yahweh's lordship and sovereignty not only concerns the church, but the nations, then that means that his lordship and his sovereignty concerns 
our nation. And as citizens of this nation, we therefore ought to be concerned with justice and righteousness being practiced here. The United States is a nation accountable to God. Are we then therefore living as a people in a way pleasing to God in in conformity to his standards? And you know, I just don't think it's possible to say yes to that question. According to the the available data, there are over 600,000 abortions in the United States every year. And don't don't misunderstand me. I, I don't say this to shame anyone present or listening who has had an abortion or to to say that there's not full forgiveness and redemption in Christ Jesus for such sin. For those present or listening who have had abortions, Christ is sufficient for you. His precious blood wipes away all sin and condemnation. You are therefore then free from all condemnation because he took the condemnation that you and we all deserve on the cross. But, but leave that aside for a moment. Let's talk about our nation as a whole. In, in a nation with unbelievable wealth, which could absolutely afford to care for all of these children and more, what do these statistics say about us as a society, about what we think of children, of what, how we treat women, what we, how we construct our society and our families? What does this say about us that we live this way? No, the United States can never be considered a just nation while this goes on. God will hold us accountable for our brutality and lack of care for human life. Or what about our history as a nation and how we've treated minorities here, especially those of African descent? Historically, our nation has committed some of the very sins mentioned here in Amos 1. Our nation has participated in the the transatlantic slave trade. Slave trade, wherein whole communities of people were kidnapped and put on ships and brought to the United States where they were sold to the highest bidder. And you might say, well, that was put to an end a long time ago. Why would you even bring that up? But then that wasn't the end of our nation's oppression of black lives, was it? Even after the slave trade was abolished here, there were still sharecropping and tenant farmer systems, lynchings, Jim Crow, redlining, police brutality, mass incarceration, the list could go on and on. And things that are still affecting these communities to this day, still affecting black communities to this day. It's not right. And God will hold us accountable for our brutality and lack of care for human life. And we we could go on and on here. We haven't even discussed the obvious problems of sexual immorality and sexual abuse and harassment of women and children, modern day human trafficking, and, and, and the various sins and injustices that prevail in our land, which are no less injustices and no less worthy of our concern. But in light of all this, what's our role as God's people? What's our role as God's people? Are we called to just build personal relationships and evangelize? To be sure, we're called to that. But is that all we're called to? That brings us lastly to the church's prophetic role. Taking our our cue from, from Amos here, the church is not called to be silent in the face of social and civic issues, in the face of injustice. 
And not just from Amos, this is from the entirety of the, the scriptural witness. Throughout scripture, we find God's people address social and civic issues, addressing governing authorities, praising them when they do well, and rebuking them when they fail to do what they should in upholding justice and righteousness. And so, often, God's people functioned as the sort of the conscience of their culture and spoke out against their state-sanctioned injustices. R.C. Sproul, he put it so wonderfully when commenting on our text. He said, following the tradition of the Hebrew prophets, the church is to fulfill the role of the state's conscience. We look for the state to be accountable to God's moral norms. When the state is not doing its duty to uphold justice, the church is called to exhort the state to do its job. And granted, the way we're called to do that is kind of a complex matter. Granted, that, that's true. That's not to say that we should, we should try to establish a national religion or a national church or try to set up some modern form of theocracy or something. That's not what we're saying. However, what, what is clear is that we hold, as a church, some measure of responsibility to fulfill this role and this call to be the conscience of our, our, our people and to be a prophetic voice in the midst of our culture. And not in a self-righteous way. Of course, as Christians, we of all people should know best that we ourselves are sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his wrath and without hope apart from his grace, that, that we are those who have perpetuated injustice and are in desperate need of the grace and mercy of God our Father. But because of that, as compassionate and patient and humble people, we're to speak out for the sake of those on the receiving end of injustice and for the glory of God. And honestly, part of me is, is hesitant to even say this this morning. Because here's, here's the thing, personally, knowing many Christians, there are some I really don't wanting, I, I don't, really don't want being a, a prophetic voice in our culture right now. Because so many of us in, in the church right now are so biblically illiterate and so spiritually malformed that, that the results could be disastrous. So many of us identify with our partisan politics more than we do our Christianity. And so many of us spend more time watching our biased news stations and doom scrolling through social media more than we do reading our Bibles. We very well might confuse being partisan with being prophetic. But listen, your, your engagement in civic and public life is not partitioned off from your Christianity. When Christ died on that cross for you, he laid claim over the entirety of your life. When he rose again, he did so to redeem the entirety of the creation. When he ascended to heaven 40 days later, he did so as the king of kings and as the Lord of lords, as Jesus said of himself in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's not just the authority concerning heavenly things. See, all authority in heaven and on earth. That means that there's not one part of this life that can be partitioned off from the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is Lord over all nations and peoples and tribes. He is Lord over all governments and politicians. 
He is Lord over all presidents and presidential candidates and prime ministers. He is Lord over all governments and governors and mayors and city council members. He is Lord over all police departments and all law enforcement officers. But then not only that, Christian, he is Lord over you no matter where you are or what you're doing or what activity you're engaging in. That means that when you're at work, Jesus is Lord and you're to represent him as such. That means that when you step into the voting booth, Jesus is Lord and you're to represent him as such. He's, he's Lord when you're writing letters to your representatives in Washington. When you engage in a political discussion on Facebook, which I wouldn't recommend, but when you do that, what you type with your fingers is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And one of my heroes, Abraham Kuyper, once said that there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all his. And so we're to, we're to seek to take every sphere of this life captive to his will. We're to seek to be a sign of his rule and reign in the earth. And one day he is going to return. And as Revelation eleven fifteen tells us, on that day he will return and all the nations and kingdoms of this world will be judged and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. But until then, the church is here. We are here. He put us here. And part of our role is to remind the nations that they are accountable to him. That he is sovereign over them and that he will one day judge them as the one true sovereign king. May we fulfill this role and faithfully represent him here. Let's pray. Father, we, we give you thanks for your word and its clarity that you are the universal Lord and that there are no exemptions and no exceptions to your lordship. Help us to submit the entirety of our lives and our roles and our, our doings and our goings and our comings and everything to you. And help us to see that no matter where we are, what you're doing, you are Lord there, Christ is Lord there, and we ought to submit that to you for the sake of your name. Lord, help us to fulfill this, this prophetic role in our various forms and shapes of, of doing so and the various spheres of life that you've placed us in. We know it's going to look different for everybody, but help us to be faithful to this. Help us to be faithful to you among all things and to swear ultimate allegiance to you not to our nation, not to a party, not to politicians, but help us to swear ultimate allegiance to you and to give you utter control of our lives. For the sake and glory of your name we pray. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. As I just mentioned, Jesus is ascended in heaven. He's ascended and he's seated at the right hand of God. He's been enthroned upon the, he uh, the, the throne of heaven and earth. 
And there all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is the absolute sovereign. There are no exemptions to his sovereign reign.